have here, these are the, uh, the five books that I myself own from Dr. J.P. Moreland. So uh, if I don't get these back, we'll pass them around. If I don't get these back, somebody's going to get hurt. Because these, are, <laughs> these are very, very uh, precious to me. Yeah, it's on tape. and I, I, I've, got, I've got a real good lawyer. Um, this book by uh, J.P. Moreland. Christianity and the Nature of Science. Uh, we have a lot of guys that are reading books about science, and they're usually written by uh, either Christians who are scientists or non-believers who are scientists. The sad thing is most scientists don't even understand the basically the philosophy of science and don't even realize the assumptions they make. This book is dynamite because it goes over the, the background. Before you even start doing your science, it talks about the, some of the philosophical assumptions uh, that need to be made. And this is this is one of the two best books that I think that is written on the subject, and, and I'd really recommend it. Uh, Jesus under fire, uh, Dr. Moreland. If you could if you could mention a little bit about it. It was edited by Dr. Moreland, and if you could just mention sure. the, the reason for it and then a little okay. bit about it. Uh, most of the books I've written, I've done so because I was upset about something and. Uh, I needed to get something off my chest. Uh, this book here was written at a time when I, I was uh, pastoring, I just finished pastoring, I went to Liberty to teach, and I was just, I was irritated with the fact that people in our society just had this sort of un, uncritical faith in the, in the dictates of science as though every, when a scientific theory works, that means that the the entities it postulates must be real, mm -hmm. so that because electron theory works, there has to be electrons, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so most people just take take it as kind of a matter of naive faith that DNA exists and all all sorts of things. And um, I I felt like in 1984 we we lost the creation trial in Little Rock, Arkansas, mm -hmm. and what what was happening was that Christie that. that religion was being placed over here as having nothing to do with science. So the creation science or anything of that sort was a, was just a complete misunderstanding of science. So I wanted to address, I wanted to write something for, for people who were a little, this is a heavy book and it's not easy reading, but it was for people who wanted to learn a little bit more about these underlying issues that are really going on and that, that are never mentioned. And, uh, and so that people could understand that. This book here, I was pressed into because of the Jesus seminar was doing some things. Uh, I don't want to rehearse. You know who they are. And a New Testament professor that teaches with me at Talbot, Mike Wilkins, who's just an outstanding guy. He's a good scholar and he's a sharp guy. Said JP, we got to do something about this, and I'm not going to do it unless you help. I, you got to get in on this. And I said I don't want to do it. And he said, Well, you're going to do it. So uh, we ended up. Uh, there are certain times in my life when the earmarks of providence have been evident, and there are others when they haven't been evident. And God's providential and, 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 and interventive care was evident in this book. We called a list of eight or nine of top evangelical thinkers in Europe and America to be a part of this. Every single one of them said, I can't do it, I'm too busy, but I've got to do it. Every one of them. Not a single person had time to do this. Everybody had far too many writing projects. But every one of them said, I, I've got to do something about this. And it usually takes it, oh, it takes a long time to bring a book together. We got this thing together in six months. It was unbelievable. It was mind-boggling. The publisher couldn't believe it. 
And uh, it has been reviewed now in 20 to 30 newspapers around the country. Um, I had the privilege of being with Mike on a conference call, an hour conference call with newspaper editors around Canada and the United States on this thing. And there were probably 15 to 20 newspaper editors firing questions at us for an hour on the phone. Many of these editors had interviewed Jesus seminar advocates. William Lane Craig was on CNN, uh, oh, praise uh, God. Uh, a, a debate in, on CNN uh, uh, before Easter, and held this up to the. It was with a, on a panel about the Jesus Seminar, and held this up and said, "If you want answers to the Jesus Seminar, you've got to get this book." Oh, man. Craig right now is probably going to be debating John Crossan, uh, who. Uh, Crosley is your guy. Jack Crossley. Jack Crossley. I, I got a mental block because he told me at Crossan, who's a, a major advocate, and they're going to debate on the resurrection, I think, Praise in another God. year. But uh, this God. book is having a, making an impact already. It's being reviewed in, uh, in newspapers, and um, the members of the Jesus Seminar we know now call the publisher to get a copy of it. <laughs> so they know about it now, and um, yeah, it's a substantive work, and uh, I'm very proud to have just had a pri privilege of having a role in it. I didn't. This is just a book edited. This book, Gary Harrimas and I, um, had it, we both have, have been interested in life after death, and are convinced that life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Immortality, the other side of death. Um, we, of course, believe that there is such a thing as life after death and think that there is actually a substantial amount of evidence that's, that, that, that it exists. And, uh, and and felt like there was a need for a book that talked about those types of evidence and then talked a little bit about what the, what the afterlife is going to be like. I mean, how can you, how can you talk and, and, and can you, what's it going to be like to be a disembodied soul? Um, and uh, what, what will life be like in that sense? Um, can you have sensory experiences if you're disembodied? What could a disembodied soul do? Um, could it move through space? Uh, what, 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 could, what could a disembodied soul do? And uh, so we, we decided to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about the problem of hell and some, and some things like that. So that was that. And you, you also mentioned uh, the, the near-death experiences. Which we do. We're here in the New Age is really blowing away out of proportion. Yes. And they give a good scholarly Christian response to we that. Try so. to do our best on that. Very kind. Uh, uh, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the others. This is the debate I did with Kai Nielsen, Does God Exist? And uh, it is now out with Prometheus Books, oh, which is an atheist publishing house. God. And uh, they've taken the book over from Thomas Nelson because I didn't appreciate how Thomas Nelson was dealing with it, so now it's kind of getting out in, in, in the more philosophical community because Prometheus is a secular press. Is, and it, is it, uh, have they just taken it just as is? As is. They, they no, it didn't change it at all. So they just didn't it's like paperback now. I didn't like the way Thomas Nelson was marketing the book. Yeah. It wasn't getting in the hands of scholars. Now this yeah. book is being used as a textbook. Praise God. In some, for example, I had a student tell me, one of my students who, who did an undergraduate degree at UC Irvine, was a pretty good school, said to me, hey, did you know that there used and does God exist in a, in a philosophy class over UC Irvine? I said, no, I have no idea. So uh, there are that, it's used in a couple uh, other secular columns. In, in that particular debate, it's, it seemed to me that uh, Kai Nielsen was spent more time of, uh, avoiding the, the issue and trying not to lock horns than anything else. So he, he kept appealing to the the concept of God is incoherent, but yeah. then it was pretty incoherent what he meant by that. He didn't come yeah. right out to it until so late in the debate that... Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think he had problems. I was, I'm really surprised that they, that they took that over because I, I thought that, that that book was... 
I thought that they would have complained that it was so one-sided yeah. and that the Christian scholarship well, came out so Yeah, so well, it's ahead. true. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it is that is true. I mean, even Nielsen admitted that the debate was that I won the debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, he admitted that. So, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, uh, then I don't need to mention scaling sector city. Uh, well, well, this is is kind of. This is kind of like his summa right here, the, the scaling of the secular city of defense of Christianity. Uh, let me just read some of the chapters in it. And uh, uh, the cosmological argument, which is the, the argument uh, uh, from uh, the effect, the universe, to, the, to its cause, uh, God. The design argument, the argument from design in the universe, that there must be an intelligent designer. God and the argument of, uh, from mine. Uh, here, you're making a, a, an awful lot of unique contributions here uh, most of the evangelical apologists that I've read uh, are not real heavy on that particular that particular subject and he has the uh, God and the meaning of life I think that's becoming real important because the, to the people I confront today in a postmodern society seem to be more concerned with finding meaning to life than finding truth I mean it's, it's kind of like they're looking for something that makes them feel good type of thing and it's kind of a backdoor approach where, where we can get the gospel through but the historicity of the new testament evidence for the resurrection of jesus and uh, science and christianity and, and then four final issues but uh this is probably if you want to really get an overview of the apologetic thought of, of dr moreland I, I really recommend this book and uh and uh, uh by the way uh all of these all these books except one we we have in the in, in the rent a car right out, outside so if, you, if you're interested in buying some dr. Moreland uh, has them for sale and, and they're, they're in the car and you can pick them up and uh, it does God exist the great debate it, it, it is basically a transcript of the debate between dr. Moreland and a, a leading leading agnostic philosopher and uh, and then there's responses by Peter Peter Kraft, uh, Anthony Flew, William Lane Craig, Dallas Willard, uh, and uh, scholars on both sides of the issue. And it, it, to me, it was just, you know, if you would have scored it by points, I mean, it was like, a, you know, a 42 to nothing shutout. And that's why I'm surprised that an, an atheist publishing company... Yeah. They just wanted to make some money off of yeah, it. Yeah, well, they're going to make a lot of money, but they're really going to hurt their cause because uh, <laughs> that was, uh, I, I really... I re really in enjoyed reading that, but can I, can I mention three others real sure, quickly? Sure, sure. The Creation Hypothesis is a book I edited on, on, on the evolution problem. Norm Geisler and I did a book with a secular publisher called Pro uh, Prager Books, Greenwood Press. You have a chapter coming out in the book with them, Mike, uh, on the life and death debate. It's an intro text on end-of-life ethics, and it's for secular community. Uh, it's not for Christian community particularly, though we end up on on abortion and euthanasia and fantasize, suicide, war, capital punishment on, on kind of a conservative approach to them. And then one final book that I edited called Christian Perspectives on Being Human, uh, which is with an attempt to gather a group of professors at Biola University and to bring their disciplines to bear on, on a joint uh, theologizing about what it is to be a human being. And I've, we've got a theologian, we've got a psychologist, we have a brain scientist, uh, we have a, a, social, a missionary anthropologist, sociologist, an educator, a New Testament guy, and, a, and two philosophers. And it's just an attempt to say, what does my discipline say about being a human being? What does Christianity say about it? Where are the tensions? 
and how have I resolved those tensions and in integrated? So, so I don't know. I've I've tried to get some things out there. Yeah. All those individuals, Christians. Yes. Right. By the way, I I also have that book, but it's missing now, and so somebody might have sold it yesterday. <laughs> so I'm hoping I can. And I haven't read it yet, so you'll want to get that one back. Maybe. Maybe. Yes. I'll see if John bought it and he's going to be out of work. No. <laughs> well, I've already got my name and you can't have it. <laughs> okay, at, at this point, we've got a pretty much uh, some of the background on Dr. Moreland's work. And uh, so I'll open it up to uh, uh, to a, a question and answer period if I have any questions at all that you'd like to, to ask of Dr. Moreland. Yeah, the chapter in the Galen Sector City, I'm talking about uh, uh, the mind. Or yes. Could you give like a brief overview? Sure. Um, there, there is an area of study called philosophy of mind, and it's, it's an area that focuses on is a human being simply one thing, let's say, a physical thing, or is a, is a human being physical and something else, immaterial? Uh, am I just a brain, a central nervous system, a body? Am I just a physical object that's very complicated, like a computer, let's say? Or is there something else in me that is different from my physical physicality? And call that a soul or a mind or whatever. Actually, it's quite important what you end up calling calling that, but it, what I try to argue is that the, that the mind is not the same thing as the brain, that they're different, mm -hmm. but that they interact with one another. And uh, I try to show a case for that. And if, if, if there is such a thing as a mind, then this is a terrible problem for, for evolutionary theory, because Darwin, uh, after he wrote Origin of Species, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, recorded a number of his musings in notebooks, and there are a couple of notebooks called the M and N notebooks, which I have not read all of, but I've read parts of them, uh, where Darwin reflects upon his theory and other things, like if evolution's true, where did culture come from? Uh, if evolution's true, uh, where do values come from? If evolution's true, where did the soul or mind come from? And his answer is very interesting because according to Darwin, uh, if there, he, he claimed, if there's any part of a living organism, any part, whether it's your ear or, or what, that could not be explained by his theory, then it would need a supreme being to create that part. If, 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 and he should have said, if we're going to give an explanation for it, it could be just taken as a brute fact that there's no explanation for it, but if, if there's an explanation for it, it would need a God to explain it. And he saw that that meant that consciousness or mind would ultimately have to be treated as a physical thing. Uh, and in recent times, many, many, many scientists and philosophers have, have pushed a drive toward physicalism, which is a drive toward treating everything as simply a material object, as a natural a need in order to justify evolutionary naturalism. Because the argument is that if what comes from matter by means of matter is only going to be matter, and if we came as a result of strictly physical causes operating on chemical and physical materials, then we're going to be strictly physical. There's neither need nor any room for any non-material thing to pop into existence during the process. So that if there is a mind or a soul, 
then not only does life after death open up as a possibility, but this raises an explanation as to how a mind or soul could come into existence. And uh, so it provides a, a piece of evidence for the fact that there is some kind of immaterial reality over and above the physical universe if consciousness cannot be treated as a brain state. Now, I don't think that the soul and the mind are the same thing, and uh, I think that that's an important issue, but in any case, that's that's sort of an overview of... Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a follow-up question. Yeah. I have not read your chapters on infanticide or abortion. I'm completely ignorant on this, but uh, is a brain necessary for a soul? No. In fact, the soul is necessary for the of your brain. The encephalic babies born without cerebral cortex yes. have souls? Yes. So then you would be against abortion in the case? Yes. Would you be averse to brain transplant? No. Because yeah. when a brain transplant takes place, the person that stays is not going to be the person that tracks the brain, but it's going to be, in my view, the person who stays with the body. Yeah. So if so we have Jim, soul transplants, but not. If we have Jim's body here, Sally's body here, and we take Jim's brain and put it in Sally's body, the person that wakes up is not going to be Jim. It's going to be Sally. Yep. Because and, and plus the body and brain are not what carry personal identity anyway. It's the soul. But yeah. but this is important. I have an article, two articles coming out in the next. Um, just uh, one second. Two articles coming out in the next four months. One with the journal Faith and Philosophy, which is the journal of mm -hmm. Society Christian Philosophers, and another one's the International Philosophical Quarterly that comes out of Fordham. And both of, in both of those articles, I argue that mm -hmm. that that the mistake of making the brain important is a, is the Cartesian mistake of reducing, per, per, of talking about personhood instead of humanness, number one, and reducing human personhood to mental functioning instead of organic organicity. And it's organic holism that is the importance of personal identity. It's not mental functioning. And as long as something is alive, then it's got a soul. And that the soul is broader than the mind. The mind is the seat of mental functioning, not the brain, by the way. The mind is the seat of mental functioning, but the mind is a part of the soul, and the soul is the ground of organic life. So if there's still evidence that there's organic unity to a thing, I would argue there's still a human being there. In the, in the case of a human, or if it's a dog, the dog's soul is still there. And um, there is evidence coming in that DNA is not what... It's interesting, but there's evidence that's come in that DNA is not what determines your identity. Um, it is not DNA. Well, wait, I assume your arguments are philosophical and theological, not, they're, they're, not biological. They're all three. They're all three. Well, they've never, as far as I know, they've never done any brain transplants. No, they're going to. Oh, in terms of that, right? They're if going they to. They did do that, right? And if it wasn't Jim, but Sally did win. In other words, would your theory be open to revision? Well, it would, except science is not really where this area should be discussed primarily, because it's not primarily a scientific question. Uh, but, but but here's an interesting piece of evidence. I mean, you can remove people's brain hemispheres and they can still retain functioning uh, in other parts of their body. So uh, uh, you can also take the DNA out of the cell nucleus uh, and, and that, that nucleus will still guide the development of an organism eventually it will die. But, but uh, the organism... If you, took a, if you took a dinosaur's DNA and put it in a frog nucleus, you'd get a frog if you got anything. You wouldn't get a dinosaur. Get a frog. 
The only thing DNA does is, uh, as I understand, I'm not a scientist, but I've read articles by them. What DNA does, uh, in order to produce a living organism, you've got to have three things. You have to have, it's kind of like a house, you have to have materials built. You've got to have materials. You've got to have a blueprint that puts the materials, tells where, where to put the materials. And third, you've got to have some uh, or ordering procedure to tell what to build first because some things can't be functional until other things. So it's not just a blueprint, but it's got to be a step-by-step -step assembly procedure. The only thing DNA does is provide the, the materials. It doesn't have anything to do with the blueprint and it doesn't have anything to do with the ordering. And in order for that to take place, the DNA can't know what to do unless it already is informed by the organism taken as a whole. And that means that the organism as a whole is prior to its DNA. Okay, did you follow that? It's not that DNA is prior to the organism. It is that the organism as a whole is ontologically prior to its DNA and has to exist before the DNA knows what to build where. Because you have the same DNA in all, in all of your body, but your DNA represses certain functions in one place and, and brings out others in another place. How does it know its location? It, it, it can't. It, it's a functional unit in the light of a prior whole. Is the point? Is this a recent? Uh... It's not. It's been known. I think it's been known for ten years or so. But it just doesn't come out because there is such a push toward yeah. physicalism yeah. to try to reduce you to a part yeah. and to say that what you are is a set of tinker toys. You know, and that these tinker toys link together by these laws, and that's what does everything. It's just mechanism. Hey, have you read uh, Medina's work? I'm well, learning. He, I wanted to take, if you don't mind, sure, I want to be sure. faithful to order, sure. so order here. You had something. Um, so, if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying, like, at the moment of conception, when, uh, are you saying at that point that a new soul comes into being as well, a creation by God? Uh, I believe so. No, no, I don't, I'm not saying that. Okay. I'm saying a new soul comes to being, but God doesn't create it, in my view. Okay, where, did, where would you say it comes The parents. I'm a Traducian. By, by their two natures. I could be wrong now, okay? This is not an issue for which I'm going to go to the wall on. But in the ancient church, there were two views on the origin of the soul. Creationism, which has nothing to do with evolution creation, and Traducianism. And I lean toward Traducianism, which is the idea that the soul stuff is, is, a, is, is brought is passed on in the act of uh, intercourse. So at the same time that the, the physical comes together, the spiritual also yeah. comes together in the formation of a new soul, and that's what drives the, the, the DNA. It's what the gives the organism its unity. It's what gives the organism its unity in life. Because living things have a unity that is not true of physical objects. So would you say that the soul is tied, you're saying then that the soul is tied to the body as a whole? No, the body is tied to the soul as a whole. Okay. The, the soul is what makes the body. The body does not come somehow come together by tinker toys assembling and after it gets complicated enough as a tinker toy, mental states pop all into the <laughs> It's What happens is you have a living organism, you have a living immaterial entity there and not temporally prior to the body, but ontologically prior to it. And then the body is the outworking of the structure that is already latent within the soul. And that explains a lot of things that cannot be explained on the other view. I mean, it explains, for one thing, why functional language cannot be eliminated when we talk about living systems. Living systems have parts that are what they are in virtue of their function in light of the whole. The heart. A heart is something that plays a role in a system. 
But that system is its cir the circulation system is itself a set of parts that plays a role in a larger system until the definition of any part of a living thing cannot be given completely unless you have the thing as a whole prior to defining each part. And so the body is just an external <coughs> material structure that is already latent within the soul. And that's why it's wrong to identify ethical debate, in my view, around personhood or around mental functioning or any of that stuff, because that is not the locus of, a, of, 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 of living things. In, in that light, kind of maybe touching on the area of psychology, um, would you say that the soul then, that the, the soul is where our basic uh, concepts and first principles come from, the subconscious, so to speak? What is a concept and a first principle? I don't well, know. Tell like, me what you mean. Um, the moral heart that's sown in man, uh, his value of right and wrong. Yeah, those, those capacities are, are capacities of the soul. The mind is a set of capacities of the soul. Would you say that the mind is the conscious part? No, because uh, I have consciousness all throughout my... My sensory faculties are conscious, but they're not my mind. My perceptive... I, your mind is not involved in perceiving. I mean, it can be involved, but it's not necessarily involved. Perception is not a mental act. Seeing a, seeing a chair is not a mental act. I, I, I part company with Plato on that, in that seeing is not a judgment of the mind. Seeing is an awareness of something, and it's not mental. It's but, conscious, but it's not mental. But the mind, uh, you see the mind is making uh, rational judgments on that sense. It that. can do that, yes. Right. So if you're going to say that you're going to go sit down in that chair, that would be more mental than the fact that you just saw it. Yes. thinking about doing something different. Right. Right. Belief is not a part of perceiving. That, or to put it a different way, awareness of facts does not presuppose interpretations. And I mean, the idea that we only get to the world through our interpretations or beliefs is false in my view. I don't know if that's well interesting to you, but maybe it's not relevant. We repeat that statement again. That the idea that the only way you get to the world is through your beliefs or through your interpretations is not true. Uh, that, or to put it differently, you don't presupp presuppositions are not necessary for, for everything. I mean, acts of awareness are not presupposition bound. I don't start with beliefs. I start with experiences. Uh, what's your view on innate ideas? Well, I, I think that I don't it's very complicated because I don't believe in any innate ideas but I do believe there may be innate structures and maybe the capacity for identity as you pointed out Phil uh, the, the ability to, to recognize sameness may be an innate uh, uh, in the sense that how could you ever teach a child uh, when one thing was the same as another this color is the same as that color uh, I, you can teach sameness of color to someone, to a kid, and teach them to use the word blue. By, by every time you saw the word blue, you could point to it and say blue. And after a while, a child might form the concept of blue. But how could you do that with sameness? How could you say of two blue things, these are the same, and then two red things, these are the same? Because you'd have to know that this use of sameness is the same one as this use of sameness. 
and then he would have to already know sameness in order to communicate sameness so there's no way to do that with sameness but it does seem that with a few very fundamental maybe primitive categories others could then be communicated one more question you brought up the soul and the mind being two different things and, uh, they're not two different things, okay. but they're different realities. But I would not use the word thing for them. But, okay. um, but that's okay. Go ahead. Um, um, would, the, would you say the mind, does it uh, exist after death? Is that the, or the soul? The or soul. Or and the, the, okay. the mind too? Or? Well, <coughs> I, take an unripe apple. Okay. This thing's maybe it's small. Yes, it's big. Now there are a lot of things at this point that are actually true of that apple. I mean, it's green. It's got a certain size. It may have a certain constituency and texture inside. It's got seeds, and those are all actual parts or properties of the apple. The properties are its characteristics, like being green and round and weighing such and such. Its parts are the are the the seed and the core and the skin, okay? So it has actual seeds and actual parts. Does that make sense? But in addition to its actual seeds and parts, it has a whole range of potential or potential uh, uh, seeds and parts, uh, properties and parts that, that are literally latent within it but are not re- actual, that are not potential in a human fetus, let's say, <laughs> right? Uh, and so those capacities or potentialities are just as just as truly ascribed to that apple as its actual properties. It can it will develop a red color later, right? You follow me? Yeah. Now, organisms things don't just have capacities. They have capacities to have capacities. Okay. I have the capacity right now to speak English when I'm not speaking it. Right now I'm actualizing that capacity, right? That's called a first order capacity. The capacity for me to speak English even when I'm not. Okay? I have the capacity, I don't have that, I don't have a first order capacity to speak Russian. But I do have the capacity to learn that capacity. Now that, human beings, living things have their you keep going up to have capacities to have capacities to have capacities until you reach an ultimate set of capacities that, that are just ultimate and that's what your nature is your nature is just your ultimate set of capacity that's why an anencephalic child that says it doesn't have the capacity for rationality like Robert Winberg and others do is hopelessly naive uh, and, it, uh, and to say that an anencephalic child without a, with just a brainstem doesn't have the capacity for rationality all right is an ambiguous claim. If you mean by that, doesn't have the first order capacity for rationality, that's true. But if you mean by that, doesn't have the capacity to develop the capacity for rationality, I think that's false. And the reason I think it's false is that I think that that fetus has all of its capacities in virtue of simply being human, but it has a defect. And what a defect is, is a blockage in a higher order capacity's ability to be realized through lower order capacities. And if, and if, if it doesn't, if a, if a fetus doesn't still have the capacity to have that capacity, to develop that capacity, but that ultimate capacity cannot be realized because of a defect, then there's no ground for calling it defective. What is it about if it's defective? If it isn't, 
that it's lost the capacity it ought to have. And what does it mean to say it ought to have that capacity if it isn't that it has the capacity to have that if, it could, if the defect could be removed? And so the claim that the, that, that uh, a newborn isn't rash, doesn't have the capacity of rationality is hopelessly not even ambiguous in my view. And that's what I've tried to contend. Now, your soul then contains a vast, vast array of capacities that are not right now being actualized. Right now I have the capacity to smell a rose, but that's not an actualized capacity. I have the capacity to think about modus ponens, if P then Q and P therefore Q, or the capacity to raise my arm or to will to leave the room. I have many capacities. These capacities, however, fall into natural families. It's, I don't just contain a hodgepodge of 5,000 capacities that are utterly unrelated to one another. As a matter of fact, my capacities are structured. They're not just a heap of them. It's not like God tossed a, a bucket of BBs in me and those are my capacities. Um, they, they fall into a very tight structure. And some of them fall into natural groupings. Does that make sense? Those natural groupings are called faculties. The word faculty stands for a natural family of capacities in the soul. The mind is a faculty of the soul. The mind is that a name that we give for my mental capacities. Capacities to form beliefs, to entertain thoughts, and to have desire, to think about desire. Sensory faculties are my ability to see, touch, taste, smell, hear, feel pain and itches, and have emotions. Emotions are types of sensations uh, to me. So the will is a volitional capacity of the soul. So these are all these are not things, and I wouldn't even want to use the word part, except I'm, not, I'm comfortable with part if you don't think of part like a leg to a table. But they're just, they're, they're, they're divisions uh, within the map of the soul of different faculties. So then, then in sense experience, the soul is involved, but not necessarily the mind. That's right. Okay, okay. The soul is, what I see, I am my soul, I'm not my mind. I have a mind. But I am my soul. I don't have a soul. I, ha I am my soul, and I have a body. Now, if you want to say I have a soul in the sense that I'm more than my soul, that's fine. I I'm a body-soul unity. That's certainly true. But, but I, I am ultimately identical to my soul because a disembodied existence is possible. So I see, my eyes don't see, I see by means of my eyes. My mind doesn't think, I think, by means of my mind. My mind is an instrument I use to think. The, uh, like the example of the child with just, just the brain stem, yes. um, talking about defects. Because you're looking at the human being as the whole unit, mm -hmm. um, in our souls, all, all those different capacities, is it possible, in your opinion, to, you know, we have our sense perception that we perceive through the body, that our soul perceives through our bodies. Yes. Do we have other perceptions yes. beyond that? Because I've read, like, accounts of after-death yes. experiences. Yes, I think people so. have perceived. I think that the soul uh, is capable of perceiving when it leaves the body. Yeah. yeah. In, in the case of like the person with the brainstem, mm -hmm. would that be a limitation imposed on the soul by the physical Absolutely. body? Absolutely. But they would still have all those capacities and faculties 
yeah. their in my view. Potential. Yeah, and, and 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 some of the evidence for this is the fact that that if the, if a defect can be removed, then the organism can function, and 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 you're not creating a new capacity in my view. Uh, what you're doing is releasing a blockage for a capacity that's already there to go through its natural process of unfolding. Would you believe that our soul, the essence of who we are, is, yes. is perfect? No. Okay. Um, I, the question I was getting at was basically, like, when Christ returns, those who believe on him, when we have glorified bodies right. to reach our, I guess, actual potential, <laughs> um, I've always wondered whether, like in the situation of that child, the body would be repaired so that the soul acting through it yeah. would, would have its actual potential. Whether the soul itself was mm -hmm. in its own actual potential, if that makes sense. But it also says we will be like him. And I think that the, the we is not just the body there. I think that the, that the body has changed because the person, the, the, the soul, because is different as well. You could argue that, yeah. yeah. But in the, but in the, uh, in the, in the intermediate state or in the afterlife. I mean, so can, here's a good way to think about it. I think I used this example some of you last night. Stop and think about what it would be like for me to be trapped inside an automobile and I could never get out and you couldn't see if there was anybody in there but you just all you could see was the automobile with the, with all the windows were tinted so you couldn't see inside. Now, suppose that since I'm inside this automobile, my ability to move and function is dependent upon not just my me but on a functioning automobile and if something happens to the car something breaks down with the gears or something, I will not be able to function and move. I won't be able to do certain things. I might be able to turn the radio on, but I wouldn't be able, let's say, to, to get mo mo local motion going, all right? Now, if that's true, that doesn't prove that I'm not in the car or that I'm the same thing as my car or that I don't exist and all that exists is, my, is the car. What it proves is that before I can do something, not only do I have to be working, the car's got to be working, right? And so that there is a functional cooperation and dependency. Now, that, it, 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 it also doesn't follow that just because I can't move while I'm in the car, that if I couldn't somehow get out of the car, I wouldn't be able to move again. And so to me, the, the, the limitations that accrue to the soul due to, to the physical problems, which are real, and, and it goes by the way, it goes the other way. I can affect my body, my mental problems, and others. Worrying can cause ulcers. Um, and worrying is not a bodily activity, it's a mental activity. Uh, um, you know, when I go to the intermediate state, does God create a brand new personal, you know? I don't think so. I think what he does, I mean, does is the person is not there because there's no mental functioning. So then, you know, God creates a new person in the intermediate state? I don't think so. I think God just restores capacities to a defective human person. I don't like to talk about persons. Um, it's already there. Anyway. John had a question. So, would you, I guess the double question, your analogy there with the, with the car, you, you would have the, the, the person with the, just the brain stem would be effectively sitting in a car with no keys, no power, no would be a human person. Well, no, there would, yeah, with, yeah, there would be some things working, but yeah. Right. right. But no control over the 
Right. You wouldn't be able to drive. Or and might not have drive, might not have, have the first order or lower order capacity for mental functioning. Okay. Now you. But could still have sentience. Right. Might be able to experience pain or other sorts of things. Sure. For example. So could okay. still be conscious. Now you place uh, human memory as a as a function of the soul. Also? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. What else would it, what, what, yes, it's not a function of the brain. No, certainly not. It might need the brain, no. but, but but it's not, the brain doesn't remember things. Right. Okay. Well, you know, the brain, how, how can a physical object engage in, in, I mean, think about your memory, just for a second here, and I'll come back to you, because I, I, I want to come back. Let's just think about, it. have you ever intentionally willed to have a memory of something? Anybody in here? I do. Have you? Have you ever intentionally willed to, to have a memory? And right now I'm willing to have a memory of, of what I did. Yeah, <laughs> I do it all the time. I mean, many times I will. I, I had a chance to teach in Hawaii. I've gone back there intentionally in my mind many times since that happened. I had believed me. I, there's a particular scene I can remember right now that is it refreshes me this moment as I think about it. Uh, so what that means is that, that I can exercise volition uh, over my memories. Well, if it is the brain that, that is what does the memories, there's not going to be any control over them because the brain doesn't have any ability to choose in that. Right? I, my brain doesn't access my memories. I do. Well, now, by the, by yeah, the, go ahead. By the same token, though, by, if I will to raise my hand, that's a physical process. No, it isn't. Well, why well, think it's a physical process? My hand is physically moved up into the air. But why think that the process of raising it is physical? Uh, maybe it's just kind of a scientific hangover, but... But what, no, sir, why think, why think, what I'm trying to get you to do is to clarify your, your conception here. It's one thing to say that an act of raising my hand may include physical processes. Right. It's in something entirely different, though, to say that part of the act of raising one's hand is either it is or, it is. for example, when well, I raise I'm my, I'm trying to say that it's strictly a physical process. I mean, certainly it began in the, in the, yes, in the in the mind. Okay. I would like to raise my hand, and then somehow it was transferred from the mind into the physical realm, where the motion actually. Well, occurred. that's certainly true. But what what the way that doesn't happen is that I don't will neurons to fire in my brain, and, and start. Uh, the, my willing does not operate on my brain. Really? My willing operates, I just directly will to raise my hand. I don't will a, a series of dominoes that ultimately yeah. ends up with my hand going up. Now, I do not deny mm -hmm. that a necessary condition for my hand to go up is that process. Mm -hmm. But here's the key lesson for me, John. That physical process uh -huh. is a necessary condition that's got to be present before I can raise my hand, but it does not, it's not a part of the act of raising the hand. So you would not it does not stand to the, the raising. The to raise. it, does, it doesn't relate to the raising of the hand in a part-whole relationship. It's not so a part of that like the first inning is part of a baseball game. So you wouldn't view the brain, in essence, as an input-output device by which your soul operates the body? No. Now, I would say that a functioning brain may be a necessary condition for, for me to, to raise my hand or to function. That may be. So I do not deny that certain body parts may be absolute, may be necessary for certain physical motions to take place. I, I don't deny that at all. Okay, so kind of like in an electrical system, you can break the system at any point and, and disable it. 
you say that you know, disabling the brain or disabling the muscles of the arm has the same effect on raising your arm. Yeah, but I'm making one more point, and that is that when you're talking about electrical systems, you're, what you're dealing with is removing a part of the whole. Right. If you've got a chain of events and you fiddle with a few of the events within that chain, you're dealing with parts of the whole system. Like if you take the second inning out of a baseball game, you're dealing with a powerful relation. I do not locate all of that stuff as a part of the entire mental act of raising the arm. I locate it outside the mental act, but it's a necessary condition for that mental act to take place. Now, why is that important? It's important for a lot of reasons, not, not the least of which is I think it's true, but if you go the other route and you, and you say that this is part of the act, then it's going to lend to solipsism and skepticism. Solipsism is the view that the only thing I can know is my consciousness. I can't know anything outside me exists. The only thing I can know in physicalist language is what's on the back of my eyelids. Because in this view, I don't see orange glasses. You, you don't see objects. What you see is a sensation on the back of your, on the end of your nerve endings. You don't taste eggs. You taste what's happening on the tip of your tongue. So you're literally tasting your tongue. You're not tasting the egg. You don't hear sounds. What you're hearing is what takes place on the, on the end of your nerve ending, as it were. Uh, you don't see books. You see sense images in your brain or wherever they're located. Now, why would that follow? Because part of the act of seeing is this physical story, and you've got all these wavelengths and stuff hitting your eyes and all that stuff. And, of course, the, the object I'm looking at is way the heck over there, and I'm way back here, and there's a lot of stuff between me and the object. What is it? Uh, light waves. <laughs> Um, things bouncing off there and hitting my eyes. And gosh, I don't see something until way back at this end of the chain. And between me and that, so, so, so the seeing takes place in here, not over there. And I never get out there. And so the only thing I know, the only direct objects of my knowledge, are things inside my own self. And that raises problems about the egocentric predicament as to how I could ever get outside of them to things out there to know they're there. And I, my solution to it is I shouldn't get trapped behind them in the first place. Now, and so I, all that light wave story has got to be true, John. I'm not denying any of that. That may very well be true. 